Celeb Savant is a career retrospective type interview focusing on singers, actors and industry experts. Join Barrett Edelstein now as he dives into the entertainment world. There are few performers as versatile as South African Jonathan Rocksmith. He moves from musical theatre star to international solo performer to showbiz pianist with style and ease, captivating audiences across the globe with his dynamic stage presence. As part of the world tour of Phantom of the Opera, Jonathan made history as the youngest English-speaking Phantom yet and won the Philippines Broadway World Award for his performance. Other international credits include Chicago, Evita, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, a reprise of Phantom of the Opera and Greece. In his native South Africa, he's added West Side Story, Sweeney Todd, Sunset Boulevard, Cats, Beauty and the Beast and the Buddy Holly Story, amongst others, to his extensive repertoire, making him a popular choice for producers and audiences. Jonathan is as comfortable sitting at a piano as he is in front of a microphone and added to this his skills as a music arranger. He has enjoyed countless sold-out original shows and concerts that include Key Change, Great Balls of Fire, Stage by Stage, Back in Lights and more. He's a concert favourite having starred in From the Footlights, The Musicals in Concert and Phantasm. His most recent success has been Swingle Bells at Johannesburg, South Africa's most prestigious theatre, the Teatro at Monte Cassino, in December 2023, where over 12,000 audience members reveled in the Christmas spirit. This multi-talented artist has notched up multiple Fleur de Cap and Naledi Awards in South Africa over the years, and has most recently added a coveted 2023 Broadway World South Africa Award to that list for his original work, Key Change. To date, Jonathan has released 11 studio albums that are now available for download, and is in constant demand on local and international stages across the globe. Up next on Slepsvant, we've got Jonathan Rocksmith. Where do we find you in the world and how are you doing? I'm currently at home in Johannesburg, and apparently as we start this interview, somebody decides to drill in my apartment block, but welcome to Joburg. <laughs> I don't hear it, so that's okay. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so now let's rewind to the very beginning at what age did you decide or realize, whether it was a child te- or teenager, to think, cool, I want to be in the entertainment world on the theater stage? And how did that journey progress to today? I know it's a number of years, so your journey yeah. in the entertainment world. I think it was the first time, it, it was a two-pronged thing. It was the first time an audience laughed at something I did on stage mm-hmm. in like a school play or a musical. And then the first time they, they applauded. You know, there was just this amazing um, uh, realization that I had, you know, like this is this is where I'd like to be and like where I'd like to stay. And as much as I enjoy putting a show together or building a show, painting the sets or that sort of thing, you know, being front and center and actually doing it um, where there's also that aspect that anything can go wrong. It's like an extreme sport in a sense, you know. Mm With TV and film, you can always just, okay, cut, let's do that again. Whereas theater, you get a one shot per show. And that kind of came to define my life in a big way. You know, you only have one shot. And I was in all of the school musicals, obviously. Um, having grown up a very overweight child, I, like most kids who, you know, experience bullying in one, one way or another, you realize that if you can 
entertain or distract your bullies, yes, you, your safest houses. And when I discovered that people will pay you to do that, like that's, that's, you know, the realization of my life. And I was given uh, a heads up that the Barnyard Theatre, this is 2005, I was finishing the trick. The Barnyard Theatre were looking at casting a few characters that were the right age that would go to Rydell High. Mm. And, uh, you know, Greece came along and I got cast as the teen angel. And the person who was directing that for the Barnyard was Ian von Memmerty, who obviously I knew from a handful of keys. And, on, you know, that first audition, there were two people in it. It was Ian von Memmerty, the director, and Bronwyn Evans, the uh, assist, assistant director, and she played uh, Frenchie from time to time, which was really, really cool. You know, when you see it in movies, like when two people meet and there's like a thunder crash and they they sort of go, oh, there you are. Yes. I'd been waiting for somebody like him in my life, and I think he'd been waiting for somebody like me in his life. And the following year, we did the Buddy Holly story together. Then we did Rock Me, Medeus. And we both differ on the story. I say that he walked up to me and said, hey, how about you do a handful of keys? He says I walked up to him and said, how about I do a handful of keys? Either way, 2008, I did a handful of keys. And one of the theatres that we performed in was the Peter Turin Theatre. Hmm. When we went down to Theatre on the Bay, I got to meet the man, Peter Turin who said, let's have dinner and chat about the theatre. And from there on, you know, I met the two most important people in my career who um, shared my addiction for the theatre as well as my madness for it, um, as well as giving me incredible opportunity and scope and scale to not only be part of amazing productions from overseas, but to create my own shows. And from the two of them, I would say I learned the business of show. As much as it is to, you know, have have the fun to create a show and come up with a show, you've got to understand how it's going to pay for itself to continue. And okay. between the two of them, they certainly um, afforded me that knowledge and opportunity. And from there on, you know, I went on to do huge shows, uh, The Phantom of the Opera, Cats, um, Beauty and the Beast. I got to do Greece again in 2010, this time as Danny. And then I've also written between the two of them, I was able to do my own shows that I have almost 10 original shows now, you know, and then the concert career that followed. So, yep. I, 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 you know, there are other producers I worked with, like Hazel Feldman and Bernard Jay and Dion Opperman, obviously. But I would say those two were the two big pillars um, in my professional life. Okay, so lots to unpack, lots of questions. My mind's just processing all of it. First of all, have you... Done or do you do television or movies? No, there's no audience. Oh, okay. Understood that. I so, need an audience to feed off because okay. I, I take my to somebody like Meryl Streep who can do like, you know, that scene in the Iron Lady where she loses her mind and she knows she's losing her mind. Yes. She can do that in a room with about six people. I think that that is proof of the existence of a higher power. It has to be. That kind of ability is amazing. Mm-hmm. I would never be able to do that. Give me a full Peter Turin theatre, 400 people, or the Teatro with 1,890 people. Yeah. I'll do that for you, no problem. Because I I sort of have that sense of I need other energy to draw from. Okay. And that's why television and film don't really appeal to me. You know, they say, if you want to be famous, do TV. If you want to be good, do theatre. Now, you reference The One Shot. I think that's a title for a show, I'm just saying. <laughs> you can make a new show called Well, one Hamilton's shot. already taken it, so. Oh, okay. Well... So that situation of 
potentially something happening wrong. Has that happened to you in shows and how has, <laughs> and have, oh, yeah. has the audience realized and how have you dealt with it? Well, you know, I think a lot of the time when, when something goes wrong in the theater and all your colleagues have to band together to make it work, you know, if the colleagues are the people like people that I've worked with, the audience never notices. But when you're doing music of the night and you crack on the top note, let your soul take you where you long to be, and you crack on that one, it's quite clear that something's gone wrong. I mean, another story was the opening night of West Side Story at the Johannesburg Theater 2017. I I actually had a very, very bad cold. Mm. I had a cough as well. And as I got to the top note in Maria, I had a coughing fit. And I had to just cough my way through the next few words. And then the next thing that I said was the most beautiful sound I ever heard, which was just horrible irony. But because I carried on through it and the conductor yes. stayed, Nolly Hunling and Felder, you know, he carried on through the the applause at the end of that song was so great because the audience saw what happened and they helped me forget. You know, it's it's something that I've had to learn from a number of people. It's called instant forgiveness. That if something does go wrong in a performance, you have to let it go immediately. Don't bring it into the next scene and overcompensate as a way to apologize. Oh, that's interesting. As you've mentioned, you've had you've created ten of your own sort of original shows. And you've also been in a number of shows where you portraying characters. Yes. What is the difference or what is a different approach for you when you are playing a character in a show compared to when you have created your own show and potentially playing yourself, so to speak, or performing as yourself? I know you put the same amount of energy and effort in, but what is the difference in no, the... you don't actually put the same amount of energy. Oh, don't you? In. Okay. Okay, let's unpack it, yeah. So Phantom comes to South Africa. You get a script, you get a score, you get a costume, you get a set. It's all been done for you. It's essentially like those model kits that you buy at exclusive books. Yes. It's all All you have to do is put it together according to a list of rules that you are also given. There's very little thinking involved in the bigger scheme of things. You have to trust a lot more. What worked for Michael Crawford is going to work for me. Whereas when you do your own show, something brand new, you don't know what it's going to sound like. You don't know what it's going to look like. And more importantly, you don't know how it's going to be received. So there is a lot more risk in that sense. So the effort that goes into that, because when I'm on stage as, say, say for instance, I just did Key Change. I wrote it. I designed it. I orchestrated it. I starred in it. I led it. As I sat down at the piano every night, four people sat down on that piano bench, the writer, the designer, the arranger, and then the headliner. So there's four times the, the thought process is going on in my head. So for instance, I'm doing a medley of the women and uh, the, the Carol King section doesn't land as nicely as I hoped it would have. For the next two songs, I'm analyzing why that happened. Maybe the downbeat was in the wrong place, or maybe I need to change that lighting cue that when we go into that section, it's clear that it's a transition. All the while I'm singing John Lennon. The audience doesn't know, but mm. I'm still in the previous scene. I'm, I've, I, I'm forgiven myself, not that it went wrong, yeah, but I forget about it, but I have to still keep going. So that by the end of that performance, I know exactly what changes need to be implemented at the next day's rehearsal before the show. It's a voyage of discovery with every moment, right or wrong. So you mentioned you felt like it didn't land. How did you feel that? 
Is it energetic? Is it the way the crowd responds? What is that perception to understand that it didn't land? So you have to have a sixth sense in when you when you when you're a theatre performer. I think what helps is some people call it ADHD. I call it a sixth sense. I like that. You're paying attention to the audience. Are they with me? Can you feel? Because there's a difference between an engaged silence and a silence where they're trying to figure out what's going on. I believe the audience has something called the ignorant genius about them. They will know if something is right. They won't know what it is. They won't know why, but they will know. Ditto for when it's wrong. I, I can, I just for some reason, I can pick that up. They don't have to be screaming with laughter. They don't have to be applauding. But I can also see on people's faces if they're like, oh, and they're with you, as opposed to, hmm, maybe it'll make sense in the next two minutes. I, I can pick up on that. So it, it, it's, it's a difficult thing because when you're playing yourself, and somebody's having a moment where they're going, mm, I don't get this. It means that they're not getting you. So you are so vulnerable and so open at the moment. It's so easy to take that personally. So you have to constantly ride that wave of it's just a show, but it's also just me. And the show is not me, but it is me. So if it's not well received, I'm not well received. Am I good enough? It's the show. So understanding that line is very, very tricky. Whereas when it's the Phantom, I'm just like, oh, well, it's Lloyd Webber's music or Charles Hart's lyrics. It's not my fault. Doing eight shows a week for a period of time, however long, whether it's your own show, like myself or audience member goes to see the show maybe once, twice if they loved it. They go, oh, it's amazing. They don't realize how hectic it is for the performers doing eight shows a week. How do you maintain your energies, your levels of work-life balance, in inverted commas, if you want to call it that, in order to maintain the run of the show? For me, it comes down to sentiment, um, especially when you're doing a show that you've always wanted to do, a dream role. On the last tour of Phantom, because Phantom will always be the most important pre-existing show I've ever done. Uh, it's linked to my family. Uh, it's linked to my memories of my grandfather. It's linked to memories of Peter Turin um, back in the good old days. It's linked to a, a personal uh, identification with the character. The show has a particular power over me that I have to maintain and manage very, very carefully. And during the last world tour, because we did it during COVID and we managed to be the only show running in the world in 2020 in Korea, it began to damage my psychology in a big way because I was eating, sleeping, breathing that show because it's all there was, a bit of balance. I didn't have a real life away from it. I didn't really know who I was at that point. I was just trying to be the phantom constantly. And that's not healthy. So as a result, my mental health took a huge knock. And as soon as your your heart is, is battling, because your voice is so linked to your emotion, I started losing my voice a lot. And I couldn't figure out why. And because I am the show and the show is me and the role and the... Because I wasn't able to do the show properly, I felt terrible. So my self-esteem started to... So it was this horrible cycle that the show had nothing to do with. I was doing that to myself. And I think what people don't understand is to do eight shows a week, you basically have to be an athlete. You have to be a vocal athlete. You have to be a physical athlete. But more importantly, you have to be an emotional athlete. And, you know, when you're playing the Phantom and you are abandoned eight shows a week... It brings up stuff that you don't even realize you haven't worked through. And that begins to take its toll. So my biggest epiphany post-2020 run of Phantom is, and Michael Crawford spoke about this in a number of interviews, 
you are only as good as the real life you have away from the theater because at the end of the show, the curtain comes down, the audience goes home. So best you do the same. Have a home to go to. What do you enjoy about playing a character? Well, I think everybody, you know, there's a childlike thing in all of us uh, playing make-believe. There's something quite therapeutic about, and particularly the Phantom, because a mask is involved. I also felt this when I did Sweeney Todd, because I shaved my head and I grew a beard and I looked so completely different to the way people normally expect me to look. There's a lack of accountability that comes with hiding who you are. It's like when kids play dress up on Halloween, they are so naughty because there's no accountability because you yeah, don't know yeah. who that was. And you do things that you wouldn't normally do because it's not you. There's a there's a there's an armor that comes with that. Okay. You know, the Clark Kent principle, you know, take you take the glasses off, it's no longer Clark Kent. I can be a superhero if I want to. And I definitely feel that that comes into it with any role. Even if you are looking exactly as you are, when I played Joe Gillis in Sunset Boulevard, it was my own hairstyle, for God's sake. But it wasn't me. So yeah. I could be cockier than I normally would be. I could be saucier than I normally would be. I could be more cynical, which is huge, than I normally would be. You know, <laughs> So there's a lot of um, empowerment that comes with that, with playing a character. The way I'm talking to you now is the way I spoke to audiences in Swingle Bells, is the way I spoke to them in Key Change, is the way I spoke to them in Back in Lights. Yes. All of that shows, you know, that's scary because what happens then afterwards is people walk up to you. They've got to know you for two hours, so they're your friend. But that meeting outside, because I'm now off stage, it's the first time I've ever met this person. And people yeah. get upset with you going, hi, nice to meet you. What are you talking about? We met two hours ago. I think it's easier playing a character because once that curtain comes down and you take the makeup off and you take the costume off and you go back to being you, this is the most important thing. Leave the character at the theater. For the people who go see Phantom, go see Sweeney Todd, like as we've already discussed, they go see the show. How many weeks pre to opening night is the whole planning, rehearsal, all those elements that come to play before it actually opens? It depends on the show and also depends on the budget. Rehearsals are the most expensive part of any show because nobody buys tickets to watch them. So you're essentially paying people to run the show without an audience. So you're just throwing money away. Not throwing money away, but yeah, there's yeah. no amortizing immediately. For something like Phantom, on that scale, in terms of the potential dangers of the set, the potential issues of costume changes, the potential issues of prosthetics and makeup, and then sound with an orchestra, blah, blah, blah. Phantom generally is five weeks in a rehearsal studio, 10 to six, six days a week. Then you have two weeks of technical rehearsal where you're running the show on stage with all the elements so that all the departments bringing the set on, having the, the, the dresses and the wings ready for costume change, all the presets with the carpenters on set, blah, all of that gets put together like an, an enormous puzzle. The choreography of Phantom is spectacular on stage. I wish we could sell tickets to, to backstage because I believe that the choreography behind any show is more exciting than what you see. Because when I'm standing in the wings here, I'm taking a sip of water, but I have to step here because the ballerinas are coming past for their quick change, that kind of thing. Oh, okay, I'm with you, yes. Whereas a show like Swingle Bells with the Johannesburg Big Band, they need four rehearsals just to get the music right. Then we add me to sing along with them. Then we add the guest artists. Once all of that's done, we now have to figure out how does it run backstage? Which route is Monique going to use to come up on stage? Which exit is Tim using? Blah, blah, blah. With something like Key Change... I was given a week 
because we were only in a 400 seater. We had to make that work. And I was sitting at the piano for the whole time. So there was no, no choreography. There's no yeah. staging. But it was more like getting the lights and the sound cues together with what we were doing. So it's how long is a piece of string? But either way, that piece of string is going to be expensive because nobody's watching it happen. What motivates you to create your own shows? I need to have something to say. First in your own first, voice I, and not in the character's voice? Either way. Oh, okay. If I'm writing a show about Marvin Hamlish, what, am I, what was the point of doing I'm playing your song? The point of playing uh, I'm playing your song, the show, was Marvin Hamlish is the most unknown, well-known composer out there. Everyone knows his songs, but they don't know who he is. Mm. But if you get to know him, you'll understand where his songs came from. So that's the point of doing the show. That's the why. You will always have a what, and you will always figure out a how for a show. But unless the why is clear to the audience from the first scene, you shouldn't be doing the show. It should be very clear as to why we're doing the show. So with a musical, you'll have an overture, which sets the tone. And then the first opening number should tell the audience what the show is about. Once you've broken that back, it's easy. Finding that to distill it down to the why is the hardest thing of any show. So once I know that I have something to say and I know why I'm saying it, I can write you a show. Are there any characters you have yet to play in shows that have already been like Phantom or Sweeney Todd that you are on your bucket list? Yeah, I'd, I'd want to do some classics. I've always wanted to have a crack at Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. Culturally, it might be a problem for me to play Fagin because I'm not Jewish. But that still, I think it's one of the most amazing characters. I do think it's slightly problematic with allegations of grooming now where he's got a whole bunch of young boys yeah. living with him. Slight issue. But I, I do think it's a great show. Um, I think a lot of the classics I'd like to have a crack at to rein, not reinvent them, but relook at them in, with a 2024 eye. But my my most popular answer at the moment is I'd actually love to think that my best role hasn't been written yet. And hopefully I could meet the composers one day and they go, there you are. We've been waiting for you. And they write you a show that only you can do the way it was for, you know, Richard Gere with um, Greece on Broadway and then John Travolta with a film of Greece, uh, Michael Crawford with Phantom, you know, Lynn Carey with Sweeney. I I'd love to think that maybe that could happen for me. And certainly, you know, we're in a world now where original stories are overtaking past stories. So who knows? Any ideas or concepts? Obviously, you can't ex uh, give all the details, but any shows that you're creating that are in the pipeline? Not at the moment. I tell you why key change was such a a milestone production for me. I I didn't realize um, how ready I was to be that vulnerable with an audience and that personal. And with all that I had to say in that show, I, I don't have anything new to say just yet. I mean that's a bit Sunday in the park with George to say, but I was so satisfied with that show. I wouldn't just want to follow it up with something for the sake of something, as Umbridge in Harry Potter says, progress for progress sake. <laughs> should be discussed. Yes, because I mean, you need and time to love, time to experience things, time to create things. Precisely. That's yeah. exactly it. I know if I had to ask you this question in two minutes, two hours, two days, I know your answer will be every sing uh, different every single time. There are hundreds, thousands of them, and I know you love them all. But if you had to choose three songs to sing from any of the musicals once we finish this conversation, what would those three songs be and from which musical? Number one, Finishing the Hat from Sunday in the Park with George. Mm -hmm. uh, number two 
probably being alive from company. And I know that's too sometimes already, but whatever. And number three, I mean, a, a, a slight, slight sort of out of nowhere, the museum song from Barnum. So Jonathan, the podcast is listened to throughout the world. So as a final message, what would you like to say? I hope to see more parts of the world wherever this is listened to, whether it be with a show or just a holiday, quite frankly. I'm, I'm, I'm up for travel, having a flat, uh, will travel. Thank you for listening to this episode of Celeb Savant. Please follow Barrett on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Celeb Savant. That's C-E-L-E-B-S-A-V-A-N-T.